Welcome to Podcast on Fire on We're Going to Eat You. It's meat and kung fu frenzy as Choi Hak goes cannibal action comedy on us in the form of We're Going to Eat You. And can it be with me is uh, to assist in our continuing mission to plug filmography gaps of makers and performers we've uh, neglected uh, up till now. And with me is therefore Michael Scott of the Action for Everyone podcast. Welcome to Cannibal Kung Fu Frenzy with Choi Hak. Hi, Kenny. How are you today? Very good, very good, buddy. How's it going over on A4E? Because uh, we we haven't kind of spoken about it for a year on here. Yeah, it's 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 going it's going well. Uh, we have had we have started pulling some some pretty impressive guests, uh, at least for us. Uh, you know, kind of relevant to to your your crowd. We had uh, a couple months ago. We had the great uh, Kenji Tanagaki, Donnie Yen's fight coordinator, on. Um, we had Philip Tan, the, uh, the great stuntman and, and father of Lewis Tan on. And the one that I'm the most proud of because he's one of my favorite directors of all time. We had John Hyams on and to talk to him about, uh, sick as well as, uh, things like universal soldier day of reckoning and stuff like that. So, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun, uh, kind of seeing the show grow and, and stuff like that. It helps, helps having Liam on the show because he, he, walks in that world so it's it's a little easier for him to try and make those connections to people and 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 just for our listeners uh, give a little context to that uh, i obviously know but uh, who is uh, who, who's this liam person you're talking about and uh, what's his um, uh, what's his profession otherwise yeah so uh one of the hosts of the show is uh, liam o'donnell who is the uh writer director of uh, the skyline movies uh particularly he wrote skyline but he d- wrote and directed beyond skyline and skylines uh so he is is uh he is an indie dtv director uh and uh, a good friend of mine and and so he and and our other friend vice victus uh run the show but because liam's in that world he's able to kind of make those connections to people and help get us those guests and uh, you 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 have your own uh, mighty connection with scott atkins obviously even though that show is uh, on uh, on hiatus for the time being but uh, we're recording on the day of sort of release of john wick 4 so hopefully on your show or in a special uh, resurrected uh, episode of uh, atkins undisputed uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to speak to scott about john wick 4 uh, now that he uh, you know by the time he's been able to take it in and uh, absorb the response from audiences and uh, all of that so uh, hopefully you guys uh, can get together and uh, chat about it yeah, I, I hope so. I'm, I'm sure we probably will at some point. But, you know, anybody that's been following it knows he's been doing a major press tour. So little old me, I haven't really wanted to bother him too much. So I'll 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 hit him up for a for an episode, you know, after the kind of the press tours died down. A bit. Which is kind of uh, much more neat to do because he's not going to do a press tour on how he feels a month after the film. You know what I mean? So just catch him when he's um, had a bit of a lie down and um and uh, all of that, uh, but knowing him, he's probably uh, like days away from uh, traveling to somewhere to start shooting something else. Yeah, he probably is. He probably is. Uh, well, yeah, because he went. You know, they literally just wrapped one more shot, the sequel to One Shot, and then he went right into the John Wick press tour. So it's uh, it's you know, the man never rests. Doesn't look like he's t- tired, that's for sure. Uh, uh, he's looking good on TV and uh, and uh, doing good and uh, leaving a good impression. And 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 not too cheesy, uh, like uh, promo stuff either. They're not roping him into 
you know, playing, I'm not saying this is bad, I love dogs, but playing with puppies and asking questions and uh, what do the what do the actors in John Wick 4 know about each other? Those kind of, you know, little hokey YouTube things that act, like, like actors sort of have to do because YouTube is still uh, YouTube and uh, is a tool. It would be great to do uh, if uh, him and him and the director could get together to analyze the scene or something like that. You know, when they, they draw upon the screen and analyze uh, how the choreography was put together. I like those segments with uh, filmmakers uh, when they're doing promotional tours. But uh, some of the stuff is kind of um, cheesy. But, you know, you got to play that game. I agree. I agree. Um, Scott did do one. It's on YouTube. I don't remember what outlet it was for, where he was analyzing some of his best fights. And that was that was pretty good. That's I you know, I've heard all those stories from him before, but I can listen to that guy talk about fight scenes until, you know, the day I die. Like he's just so thoughtful about how action scenes are put together that uh, it's it's always entertaining to listen to. Excellent. And uh, both the Action for Everyone uh, show archive is obviously up and the Atkins Undisputed show archive is obviously up. Uh, if uh, people uh, want to go somewhere to get the show uh, uh, immediately, where do they go? Uh, you can find us anywhere podcasts are found. So your your favorite podcast app of choice, you can go to Linktree slash Adkin or uh, A4E podcast, or you can find us on Twitter at A4E podcast. Uh, we don't we've got other social media, but we don't we hardly use it. So Twitter is usually the best place to find us and reach out to us. You'll have to decide amongst the four of you uh, which one is going to do the dance thing. And then you go on TikTok to promote A4E. Like <laughs> who's got the best moves? That's Vice. Vice 100 percent has. I'm, I'm going to designate him the TikTok manager. There it is. <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, for the rest of the contact information for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, uh, go to our site, podcastonfire.com. The show archive for Podcast on Fire is up there. We've uh, we, we obviously done Shawhack movies throughout all these uh, years, but uh, I went back to make sure we got uh, the Butterfly Murders in the can. We did an episode on that. Uh, now we're doing, we're going to eat you in the future. We're going to do an episode on Dangerous Encounter First Kind. So uh, all of that is up there in our archive. We're available wherever you find podcasts as well social media facebook group twitter instagram and uh, find us on apple podcasts and uh, stitcher and spotify and uh, wherever you find podcasts really so that's us so we're gonna take a mute we're gonna take a music break and i'm just gonna clip something from the suspiria soundtrack which is not as random as it sounds because uh, we're going to eat you is uh, that kind of hong kong film it it uh, chooses uh, some of the best music but it's not its own music. So uh, fans of Suspiria, w- as soon as you turn on, turn on, we're going to eat you. You're going to recognize uh, a couple of cues from that soundtrack. But uh, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, I guess. So, um, uh, so we're going to check out uh, some music from We're Going to Eat You slash Suspiria. And we'll be right back. And welcome back, and the movie for this episode is We're Going to Eat You from 1980, directed by Choi Hak, and plot from the Hong Kong Digital Review of the Film, 
a most unconventional civil servant known as CSA Agent 999, played by Norman Choi, is ordered to arrest Notorious Thief Rolex, played by Melvin Wong, who makes his home on a remote island. What 999 doesn't know is that the place is populated almost entirely by cannibals, and he barely escapes with his life after foolishly entering the local slaughterhouse. Rolex wants to leave the island, but cannot because of orders from the colony's chief. So he reveals himself uh, to martially skilled but not very bright 999 in the hopes that they can join forces to escape. When that plan fails, Rolex tries to murder the chief, played by Eddie Coe, but ends up dead himself, leaving 999 and another unfortunate traveler, a thief, played by Hon Kwok Choi, to battle the hordes of hungry killers themselves. Like, why wouldn't you watch We're Going to Eat You, based on the fact that it's Choi Hag doing a cannibal film? That's the sort of main thought that uh, enters uh, enters my brain like it's it, it's kind of a must but uh, we'll get to the review in a little bit we're going to do some background notes and uh, th- there are things uh, you know going on besides action here obviously this has martial arts uh, but uh, uh, you know despite the apparent action tint there are nods here i suppose if you simplify it uh, it has nods towards western horror films like texas chainsaw massacre the Italian cannibal film cycle. In my original review, I quoted 2000 Maniacs. I guess I can stop there. Like, Would you agree that those are little minor, inspir- like unavoidable inspirations because they were still uh, famous movies by 1980? You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Italian cannibal films and all of that. Would, would you say that you could find little snippets of those in here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I hadn't thought of it, but it does really have a 2000 Maniacs vibe. But I'm not sure that that's something that would have necessarily made it over to Hong Kong. But certainly, Texas knowing Choi Hawk, at some yeah. point, I think he would have uh, picked up on it on um, Herschel Gordon. Yeah, it. Uh, but no, it it definitely the the vibes are definitely that 70s horror vibe is is definitely strong. At least in the the dressing of the movie, if not you know, the actual narrative and the way the plot plays out, but certainly the look, the style is, is very reminiscent of, of those other seventies horror movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are other things going on here. Uh, anti-communist themes uh, are present here since the starving masses uh, craving the meat are not given their fair share by the chief played by Eddie Coe. He wears a military uniform and in Lisa Morton's book, The Cinema of Choi Hak, she quotes the armbands the villagers strap on as they head to the meat distribution call is a reference to this anti-communist theme as well. Uh, the local funeral parlor is also called a people's funeral parlor. So as the author said, this is part of the joke as well. Uh, Morton quotes that uh, later films in Choi Hak's filmography may have shown an unease about 1997 in a more distinct way but in the early 80s uh, or, or in a different way rather but in the early 80s Choi Hak looks to be horrified at the prospect of 1997 and in her words as well Lisa Morton is a vicious satire on political systems disguised as a comedy action thriller and in uh, Morton's book uh, Choi Hak tries to recall because she spoke with him uh, as well he tries to recall where this satire of communism came from he, he was thinking that these um, these were echoes of um, of things from his student days uh, that involved political movements and he still had that in his uh, brain and uh, that bled into we're going to eat you here's a point in uh, life where, where you talk and argue and argue about uh, direction uh, plans you know when you're young but people can also be naive even when involved in political movement. 
and they end up following leaders with no integrity that promises more than, than they um, can deliver. So that can happen as well. And uh, Choi Hak says that the 60s and 70s, uh, in his view, they were about talking about ideo- uh, ideology. And he wanted to do a satirical spin on it. Uh, he has expressed elsewhere that he didn't feel it was necessarily successful, but he knew what his ambitions were. But he also felt embarrassed because uh, Si Yun, the producer of Seasonal Film Corporation, asked for a kung fu film. And Choi Hak made a political satire instead. This is the company that brought you Drunken Masters, Naked Eagle, Shadow, uh, and even The Butterfly Murders, which was Choi Hak's first uh, film. Uh, he, he could sense disappointment by Seasonal as they watched this, but even surprised by himself, Choi Hak, like he almost unknowingly made a satire instead of the kung fu film. So he was in some kind of directing haste. And I want to track back a little bit to The Butterfly Murders when I did the research on that. I had the pleasure of watching a video interview with Choi Hak specifically talking about The Butterfly Murders. And he was talking about, oh, I just use my gut instincts, really. I, I, I was so mad because it comes out like that. I really loved The Butterfly Murders. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, it, it comes out in such a strong, distinctive way it has his direction has his direction has flair and there's a uh, there is a control behind it it's not random wusha stuff so as i'm thinking uh even though he did he didn't think that we're going to eat your landed as a satire necessarily but he was still in that phase of i'm gonna use my gut instinct and communicate things that are kind of conscious subconscious and it's gonna come out like this i, I would love that gut instinct mike <laughs> it's it's absolutely it, it's absolutely insane to me that you know but this is why you know we were talking offline this is why he's our mad genius for a reason right that he just even his stuff that doesn't work like this there's always something going on under the surface that makes it much more fascinating than lots of people have made cannibal horror movies but only one looks like this like, like only Choi Hawk could make this one, it, regardless of what does, you know, we'll talk more when we get into kind of actually reviewing the movie, regardless of what does and doesn't work. It's the same with the butterfly murders. Uh, I have not rewatched dangerous encounter yet, but I remember that one being very similar. And obviously as you go later into his career, you get those same things where, you know, it, even, even some of his more off the wall stuff, like say double team is, a unique product that only he could make a unique film that only he could do. Um, and that that's true throughout his entire career for the most part. You, you can't go, uh, go about Hollywood uh, using your gut instinct though. So, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it, it, I, I've, I've turned around a little bit on double team. I love knockoff and especially knockoff just seems like the work of uh, someone using his stream of consciousness. And he has a camera as well. <laughs> to visualize that stream of consciousness so that's why it's visually so different and all over the place and indulgent but it's uh, it works because it's coming from him he's kind of good at uh, using his uh, his eye in that uh, gut instinct uh, way but but of course as he got older obviously uh, as he had visions for for the kung fu genre in the 90s i'm sure that was a very fully formed idea that then became swordsman and once upon a time in china so i think he, the, the way he speaks about gut instinct is is kind of a young filmmaker's um, manner and uh, a, a young filmmaker in development that uh, has uh, a little bit of magic in him that he doesn't quite understand yet but it's coming out in a distinct way 
Except I will say that 100% Black Mask 2 is him working on pure gut instinct. Like, <laughs> what I know about the making of that movie, that movie's all gut instinct, for better or worse. Well, they're all Hollywood movies and his English movies. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking he didn't have, like, top XX looking at him and breathing uh, behind him and looking over his shoulders each and every day on Black Mask 2 specifically. Uh, maybe on Double Team. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, but uh, it feels like the leash is a little bit looser. On knockoff and black mask too. Wrestlers and elephants. Anybody want to say no? Didn't think so. <laughs> Let's go. We mentioned Suspiria, and obviously in Hong Kong films you have uh, tons of unauthorized uh, music from uh, Italian movies. Uh, tons of Ennio Morricone stuff. Or uh, obviously, Goblin has made an, an appearance in uh, kung fu movies, including Master with uh, Cracked Fingers, the famous. Uh, score from dawn of the dead but there, there were some comments on because he's obviously aware that they were using score from from suspiria and he said we didn't have a music budget on the butterfly murders it was stock music canned music and uh, when he got to uh, all the wrong clues which was uh, the film after dangerous encounter first kind he insisted on veering away from canned music and, in, and instead producing something original which wasn't uh, an easy discussion to have with his producer because you gotta think, like, what is cheaper? Use what other composers in the world have done already, or therefore don't spend, or spend and compose things. And uh, as he also said, you know, the, the pre-existing canned stolen unauthorized slash stolen music was actually very good. So, obviously, the Suspiria score is excellent. Probably works a little bit better in the context of Suspiria than in the context of We're Going to Eat You. But still, it's a classic... Uh, score and uh, they, they like a particular cue in it uh, and uh, they run uh, run with that uh, so it's all it's all good fun that's that's kind of the one fringe benefit right is that given the the that this is very obviously a low budget movie even by hong kong standards reusing suspiria we probably got better quality music than what we would have gotten if they had done original music. So there, there is a little bit of a fringe benefit there to, to reusing Suspiria. Uh, the, the other one that stuck out to me that's weird is is the Wang Fei Hung theme randomly comes in. No, it's, it's not very random because at the time w- when it comes in, I mean, I don't have the note necessarily uh, in the body of the review, but the, uh, the cameo from Sai Gua Pao is relevant because he was in all those Wang Fei Hung movies as the stu- as stuttering so the sifu. So it's a recognizable face, and therefore the music fits. So it wasn't as random as you might think. Gotcha. Okay, that I did not I did not pick up on that. So see, this is why I love coming on here. I learn something new every time I'm on this show. Even if though most of us have not seen like a, a frame of those old uh, Wang Fei Hong movies, mainly because uh, they don't have subtitles, and uh, some of them might be lost. But uh, the, 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 so you you sort of pick up after a while that uh, who were in all those uh, Wang Fei Hong movies on a constant basis. Like, uh, Sekin was a recurring villain, obviously, playing different characters throughout the various Quanta King, Wang Fei Hong uh, adventures. And uh, Buck Thief So or Stuttering So was a constant as well. And whenever he did cameo, he always looked like he, he was out of the Wang Fei Hong films. It was not like he was uh, putting on another character. They used him for the recognition factor. So, and, and the, the sort of cheesy comedic factor as well just do your thing and say sifu and uh you got comedy gold uh, but i've heard other movies with no one for own connection on screen use that uh 
dis- uh, distinct uh, composition that is associated with those films. So sometimes it does pop up randomly. But it's good, though. It's good, though. It's good. It's great. I mean, it's been stuck in my head for two days. So, you know. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we're going to eat you in terms of its reception. Uh, it did not do very well with the public. Uh, it uh, earned about 1.05 million Hong Kong dollars, which meant it placed quite low on that year's uh, list. It came in at 100, 113, whether that's uh, amongst the local films or the Western and local films uh, smashed together. But still, that's a, a low gross. And... Um, his violent social commentary, Dangerous Encounter First Kind, fared much better, as we'll get to in a later episode. It placed um, 33rd on that year's uh, most uh, profitable films. So uh, he got bumps in seats for, um, for his uh, quite confrontational and violent uh, political thriller, uh, Dangerous Encounter First Kind, aka Don't Play With Fire. Let's go back a little bit to Butterfly Murders. Do you remember watching that? Were you at all like enamored with the, the Wuxia murder mystery that that presented? I don't remember a ton about watching it. It was one of, it was, you know, I probably haven't seen it for over 20 years, but I, I remember at the time, yeah, being thinking it was again, this kind of weird genre mismatch that somehow still manages to work. It does. It's like animal, animal horror, but also uh, wuxia tropes, the ca- character speaking in a very elegant uh, theatrical way. He designed it deliberately, but not to, um, to twisty turny where it becomes muddled or anything, uh, and uh, and I love the atmosphere. Uh, in the, they they enter this castle right in the uh, underground uh, uh, paths and uh, and the uh, rooms of the castle, and, which is a good like uh, solution for your low budgets. Just walk around uh, a lot of uh, stone walls and what have you. But he, he does uh, some uh, magic and working with those butterflies. He even commented on that in the video interview I saw. It was just a nightmare. Because um, no one really knew how to handle butterflies. So they, they trans- transported them to the set and they were all dead. Because they, they had not prepared them for the like the uh, demanding trip. And uh, doing takes with butterflies that lasted for a couple of seconds was out as well. Because they didn't do much when they were alive. And so he, he made it difficult for him from film one. Those butterflies, they're just always such divas. Yeah, they just sit there and do nothing. But at least he had a, had a couple of scenes where they're supposed to just sit there and be menacing forces in the thousands, hundreds of thousands. And he got it to work. I really love Butterfly Murders. Um, we, we finally got like a reissue probably 15 or 20 years ago where we at least got to watch it in widescreen. You know, crappy subtitles uh, aside, but at least we got to watch it in uh, widescreen. And when it came to the seasonal films... They were quite often uh, quite poorly stored. Uh, we're going to eat you does okay, but the butterfly murders have, is still plagued with a lot of like yellow staining on the print, which is kind of permanent. You can't just erase that uh, with computer technology. Uh, you couldn't anyway in twenty year, twenty years ago. If you do sit down with that, just um, just remember that um, in daytime scenes, it looks like someone took a piss on on the print. But uh, it's I think you've seen worse. I think you've seen your share of you know western grind grindhouse prints or asian grindhouse prints and uh, they can just look completely green at what at some points you know yeah i was actually kind of surprised at how good we're going to eat you still looked it had clearly been maintained at least reasonably well it didn't look as bad as a uh as a a 
40 year old Hong Kong as I expected a, a the the film quality of a 40 year old Hong Kong film to look yeah it it survived a seasonal storage and in the drunken master snake and eagle shadow situation most prints that we've seen on DVD and subsequently um, blu-ray and things they come from America they come from Sony and they got those prints before, like they didn't get them in that condition originally. So, so I think if someone were to bring out uh, Drunken Master and Snake and Eagle Shadow from from the original prints uh, that are, that are stored in Hong Kong, you probably would have a little bit more trouble with that uh, yellow green staining thing. Um, but that never stopped me from uh, watching the Butterfly Murders. Uh, so, so I recommend going back to it because uh, it's. Um, it's a unique film. It isn't. It isn't like those Shaw Brothers films. Those uh, impossible to follow Shaw Brothers films, necessarily. It has its own sort of independent style, literally, because seasonal was an independent uh, entity that did ever so well. I mean, you can do a full podcast on the impact that Mseun had on the industry, going from discovering, not discovering, but borrowing Jackie Chan and making sure he was discovered by audiences, and then fl- uh, flash forward to No Retreat, No Surrender. And flash forward to uh, further entries in the No Retreat, No Surrender series and Blood Moon and things like that. Like he, Mseun had uh, had his eye and had an eye for talent, really, including Choi Hak. I mean, uh, Choi Hak did well for himself. Uh, subsequently, he wasn't made a star through the seasonal films, but um, it's uh, everybody knows how important they are. But uh, sometimes it's uh, easy to forget that Mseun is this key figure of Hong Kong cinema. And uh, made sure that that got a chance to show its magic uh, internationally as well through uh, through said Jean Claude Van Damme films and uh, things like that. So. Yeah, I'm I'm well on record for loving seasonals Western output. Uh, you know, especially Blood Moon, uh, which for the longest time I considered to be the best Western Hong Kong style movie. But uh, yeah, you know, he certainly had a unique eye for how to transfer that Hong Kong style to uh, kind of Western films, which not a lot of other people were doing. And even during the the 90s heyday of Hong Kong filmmakers coming over here, uh, a lot of those movies still don't feel like some of those seasonal ones do. You get to like Blood Moon, obviously, but also No Retreat, No Surrender 2 feels like a full-blown Corey Yen movie, you know? I always confuse if it's two or three that Keith Vitale and Lauren Abaddon are in. But I like that one very much. Um, that one is the Hong Kong style transferred to the West via Western performance. Um, I think it's free. Uh, but uh, Super Fights is another one as well. Like Keith Vitale is in. So uh, they, they, there's a lot to recommend in those films. That, and they they are like direct-to-video in feel, of course. But they, they are quality films, uh, really. All good. Well, let's get to the movie review of uh, We're Going to Eat You. And as for my short opinion, behind its goofy title actually does lie a goofy, somewhat gory Choi Choi Hak movie, believe it or not, behind a cannibal film. It again combines imagery and elements from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 2000 Maniacs, cannibal movies in general. The end result is played with a broad Hong Kong comedy and banter that doesn't always land. He doesn't focus on making this a tense horror film or anything. It, it's a satire, so therefore it comes off as uh, more comedic. But there are some funny guys here from time to time. Also, the low-budget gore is sometimes uh, quite clever. And uh, the finale is quite wild, as it's uh, very active, and Choi Hak manages to find uh, ways to introduce roller skates into it. 
and you also got Koryun's martial arts choreography to add a little fun to the to the mix. So, so there, there's enough here to like for Choi Hak followers, followers, but it's a little bit of a precursor of uh, greatness to come, I guess, because uh, it doesn't land. All elements uh, do not land, uh, but it's essential viewing if you're studying development of one of Hong Kong cinema's main trendsetters of the 80s and 90s. You shouldn't avoid this. You you can watch it for the kind of crazy-ass cinematography at times. Uh, we, we talked about Choi Hak uh, likes to place uh, cameras in c- uh, unconventional uh, settings and uh, shooting from unconventional angles. And uh, he finds a couple of places here and there where he uh, chooses to indulge himself and therefore the movie comes off as a, a little bit fresh too and not stale and low budget uh, not this like a cheap outdoors film so uh, th- there are a lot of things to recommend here but it it's kind of loud too so for me maybe it worked better locally who knows but uh, the, and, and the satire you can sense it but i wouldn't say it's a slam dunk or anything that's a short opinion for now what did you think of uh, we're going to eat you I had a pretty great time watching this one. Well, you're smarter, so you understood the satire, probably. <laughs> you know, it, it's more that, um, look, there's definitely some parts of it that I will say it's a 90-minute movie, and it felt much longer because, as you pointed out, some of the standard Hong Kong broad comedy, boy, does it really it really bogs the movie down uh, in a lot of ways. But I, I still had a, a pretty good time watching it because – you kind of hit the nail on the head. There's, there's a vibrancy to it that it's just, it's so it's the anti sort of staid stoic martial arts film, you know, take the cannibal aspect out of it. Even it's, 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 it's not a very staid stoic martial arts film. You've got Corey Yun's choreography. You've got Choi Hawk's camera work and, and his vibrancy. And so to me, it it really does have a, a, a good, strong kind of energy that I liked. Yeah, it doesn't feel like uh, every other 1980 film, Kung Fu or not, which is uh, to its uh, credit. And that's a major positive that uh, is really, uh, there's uh, nothing really out there in Hong Kong cinema land that you can compare to, like, uh, that comes to mind instantly or anything. Yeah, no, you know, it's it's actually funny. I've I've always really compared Choi Hawk to my favorite director, Sam Raimi, because I consider them very similar, not just their styles, but their actual careers. And it's never felt more apt to me than watching this one, because this one, while it doesn't feel it's not the success that Evil Dead is in terms of being a sort of perfectly conceived movie, it still has that same low budget energy. And then if you look at where their careers go, you know, you sort of consider like Once Upon a Time in China to be Choi's Spider-Man. And and stuff like that as they as they build up, but this, this Black Mask Two was a Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we should be so lucky. Um, <laughs> is this has an energy that I just find irresistible? I, I really love, especially you know I I am one of those guys that complains a lot about how modern movies feel just flat and lifeless. I'm an old man yelling at clouds when it comes to that. But there is a there is a a certain vibe to young, up and coming, insanely talented filmmakers that I just find irresistible. And that was the thing. There is definitely stuff in this movie that just did not work for me. The giant trans character, everything involving her was just absolutely abysmal. Two meters, 11 centimeters of a giant. (laughs) Yeah. I had to check because is that really a big guy or are they using false perspective? Nope. He's massive. And uh, and way too much 
Han Kwok Choi's character, who's unnamed. He's just a he's the you know the glasses wearing drifter, but way too much of his character in a lot of scenes for me to. Um, but there's still an energy to this that I just I found absolutely irresistible. I could not my eyes away from it, no matter what was going on on screen. And and that's part of what I really found delightful about it. I just vibed. When all pieces are laid down, I firmly agree that uh, the way it overall works its magic is, is, is kind of irresistible because of the genre intent here and the plot intent that involves cannibals and a little bit of satire that's either on the nose or very clever because it's uh, topical in 1980. There's an intent here. It isn't random shit from some uh, dope-smoking uh, youth or anything that's on screen here because uh, he, uh, as we talked of, his uh, gut instinct was kind of a, a full, distinctive nuanced one uh, co- coming out in the butterfly murders in, in such a great way so i'm thinking that the, this is a continuation of it even though it doesn't land but uh, if we're gonna touch on the on, on the satire again i'm not the smartest person to talk about this those background notes came from elsewhere i wouldn't have picked up on that at all that it's an anti-communist themed satire but uh, you know regardless if the intent here is to satirize a hungry consumerist society in a goofy, broad way. Uh, I mean, does it land in any other territory than mildly amusing because they're using such broad strokes to to uh, depict the satire? I mean, I'm asking myself these questions. Questions: Is it a local language film that would have more nuance for a na- uh, native speaker, rather? I'm the naive one. Or is it just broad comedic stuff attempting to touch base on some issues uh, and touch base on a few different genres like kung fu, comedy, backwoods, horror, the cannibal psycho, you got a special agent of a case. And I would say, you know, the satire is, uh, you know, it's understandable. So it's not uh, completely useless. But I'm I'm wondering if it ever really landed in any other territory there. Well, that's kind of amusing. That uh, you have an anti-communist theme mixed with the cannibal plotting and a leader that's withholding the meat. He's not sharing it equally amongst the people. He's sharing it as equally as uh, he feels like in a moment. So, you know, if I were to make a determination, it's I'm probably on the side of Choi Hak here that uh, it's not uh, a useless choice to have this satire here. But it's probably not very successful um uh, Especially when you when uh, it's so loud and broad, so uh, that's my kind of take on it. So, did did you take anything away from what uh, he was trying to do uh, with uh, drawing these uh, lines to uh, to cultural revolution and anti-communist themes, mixing that with uh, with uh, the meat frenzy of the people and all that, or was it just Hong Kong comedy stuff? I got to be honest, if I had not read before I watched the movie that he was a, uh, you know, that he was trying to comment on that stuff, I'm not sure I would have picked it up as anything other than broad Hong Kong comedy stuff. You know, I I mean, if I wanted if I wanted to, like, really try and defend the satire in this movie, I I think I could make some arguments, but I don't know that they're actually intentional. Like for the fact that that Eddie Coe is so over the top in this, that that's to me, that's part of what makes it hard to take it as satire, as I should say, as effective satire, because he's not really threatening in the movie. He, He doesn't fill you with dread. Now, I guess you could argue that that's 
Choi Hawk's entire point is that the people who run the communist parties are these over the top buffoons, which is why they have to wield this power the way they do. But I don't know that the movie's necessarily that deep. It's actually funny. The, the, the one thing that was more that struck me as more interesting from a satirical standpoint, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, is Norman Choi's character, a, a, Agent 999, because here we've got a character who shows himself to be very have some pretty great martial arts prowess, be very confident, be very assured, and then also be completely ineffective and ineffectual for the entire movie. And and that humor is more sly, if anything. They they, they keep that little bit of a down low. Because, yeah. b- because you see his physical prowess, as you said, and Norman Choi is obviously someone who can correspond to that. But then when you maybe look back on it, wait a minute, what did he do, as a matter of fact? <laughs> yeah, he has to get rescued several times. He keeps, he like wins fights for like 90% of them and then loses and gets kidnapped. He almost gets eaten several times. Like he's completely ineffective. And I don't know because again, I was I, not just your notes, but I was trying to do some other research. It feels like they're trying to say something there with that one, but I can't quite pull the string at it. Other than is it just funny? But like you said, it's so downplayed that it you know everything else is so broad, and that aspect of it is so downplayed that I I don't know, but I feel like there's something there. Yeah, and those contrasts with him appearing cool you know with the with the hat and constantly with the cigarette and then that he's a kind of useless they they don't go for a like a, a vibe with him or anything so I, I think that that's more successful than uh, you might pick up on a during a first viewing or anything but so, so it's good that you extracted that that uh, he, he certainly goes for a darkly comedic tone partly here in the beginning uh scenes we get a bloody corpse dragged through the frame while while the friend of the deceased tries to argue his fate with the butcher's cannibals so i i, I like those contrasts and in terms of gore here uh, they don't have an effects budget so gore effects are done uh, kind of off screen on screen meaning that you know when torsos are cut open uh, we don't see it we see a saw going back and forth where we don't see it going through a body we see blood thrown on the the saw we see like uh, animal intestines probably ha- held up in the foreground and uh, now that they pull that out of a person so uh, and blood runs down you know uh, slaughterhouse benches and all of that so they clearly couldn't so uh, th- this is the way you you know your your option two is to do it through a little bit of camera trickery and uh, use the blood packs that you do have and that you can make. But it's never really a movie that hinges everything on the gore. So it's okay that they don't have a a build of a body that they can saw through and make uh, gruesome stuff like that. And thankfully, Mike, they don't kill any animals in this one, speaking of cannibal cycles. (laughs) You know, at least, yeah. at, at least, and Hong Kong films wouldn't have uh, hesitated, but but at least it's it's that. So, so was that okay for you? That they, I mean, they, they and you you could see that intent as well that they don't have the effects budget, but it's not what the film is about mainly to uh, to gross us out. I actually thought that what they did do was uh, incredibly effective. The way, especially that opening scene, the way they use the pouring blood as you're hearing the noises, I, I thought was actually quite 
and I'm a gore hound. Uh, I love gore. It would it would have had an, uh, would have had an effect on an audience. I think uh, I'm I'm not saying it's useless or anything. I'm just saying that they they were working with uh, for no such uh, uh, tools or anything. They didn't have Tom Savini here. <laughs> And, and, and that was one of the things that I really, I really enjoyed was was the creativity on how to do it because I found a lot of it still really effective uh, and really unsettling, almost in a way better because knowing the budget, you know, even let's say they had a, a small budget for gore effects, they probably wouldn't have been very impressive, very effective. Uh, they would have looked cheesy. So I think the fact that they had to be more creative this way actually worked in their favor but like you said it's also not this is not a gore movie for a movie that's ostensibly a, a cannibal murdering rampage movie it's not really the point the cannibals are almost a little bit weirdly like the fact that they're cannibals is almost like secondary a little bit to the rest of the movie yeah because they're not um tribal people or anything they are people and they've been led to this uh, frenzy and desperation in times of hunger and uh, so whatever meat is incoming they they do that that frenzy enters them but they're, they're, we're not dealing with tribal people here necessarily um you know they, they are drawn to the arrival of meat like magnets because they're hungry and uh, all that plays into what he's trying to satirize other poles and uh, uh, it's all lively even though it's quite broad and uh, it's amusing and understandable where they are coming from what they're communicating that leaders are not going to share uh, materials and food uh, equally amongst the, the people they're not spreading the wealth amongst the people uh, equally but they're still placing demands on them to and increase demands on them to get their fair share and all that so th- that adds to a lively factor of the film and th- there is a, a loud tone there's content established some sly satire that works uh, in, in a medium manner but but again, it's not an immediate land since it's communicated in a wild, lively, loud manner. It leans more towards broad banter and broad reactions, and so that that, that tone makes it troublesome for the film to settle at all times. So you know it needs to settle down at some point. Really, I, uh, that was my kind of main argument this time. That uh, you you've you've earned a little sit down film. You don't need to be this anxious. Um, about tone but uh, we don't go 50 minutes with hugely annoying stuff and then some highlights pop up sporadically because there are stretches where it really works well involving again norman choice agent 999 and when that is mixed with koryun's action choreography and uh, also a chin yutsang is uh, the second action director and there are some really clever scenes here i really enjoy the scene when norman choice is suspended uh, by both his feet and arms, and he's swinging around in that position. They obviously tied him to to those uh, two trees in order to avoid uh, cleavers and what have you. And but he also does complex action while tied up, or his stuntman tied up uh, as well. There, there are some uh, shots where that's not him. And I thought that's when the movie um, added some highlights of uh, of note, uh, where it's cool that we can have next to the cannibal stuff, the satire stuff some of Hong Kong cinema's bread and butter, but still, I have not seen a sequence like that either, necessarily, where the performer is um, is kind of helpless and still needs to do complex choreography, all tied up. So I, I, I thought that was rather impressive, to be honest. Yeah, I have to completely agree. I, I, I thought the 
the actual martial arts, the, the fight scenes in this were really well done, nicely well done. Uh, I was not actually expecting that. Uh, I was not expecting it to kind of have that action. Uh, the other thing that I thought worked really well in those scenes is the I thought the masks on the the masked butchers were really well done, like really mm-hmm. effective in terms of creepiness. So when you've got Norman Choi fighting these like cleaver wielding masked guys, uh, I thought there was some some again, a very effective type of tension in those scenes. Uh, that is somewhat undercut again by Norman Choi being ineffective by the end of the fights, but there is some really nice tension. Those fights taken individually, I think have some really nice tension to them that, that made them uh, a lot, a lot of fun for me to watch more than I was expecting this movie to have. I was not expecting this movie to not be fun, but I was expecting more on the horror side than the martial arts side. And uh, one of the best bits, it's a later action sequence when he's again back in the slaughterhouse. And you think that, this is going to sound tropey, but uh, but you think that, oh, they got him, they chopped off his hand. And he thinks that as well. And it turns out, oh no, I'm fine, because they've uh, chopped up and, and already chopped off arm and its hand. So I'm okay. <laughs> it's not unusual, but it was well-timed and well-performed. Because it's all you, you got to time that well. The perspective needs to be correct as well, so you don't see that uh, they, they've in fact not hurt Agent 999. So there are some clever comedic bits here that I'm sure Choi Hak uh, weighed in on um, as well. Yeah, and, and I loved what you pointed out about the timing in that because the, the shot selection in that has also got to be spot on. And it is great because you've got a low-angle shot as they're chopping the arm. And then you go to a high-angle shot to see the full fake arm as Norman Choi realizes he's fine. And then it goes into him doing martial arts, you know, on the table from this overhead shot that uh, was again, really a a nice bit of comedy to break the tension, but then right back into it. That is the stuff in this movie that I think works really well in terms of both the humor and, and the action and the horror it just unfortunately then sometimes after that it drags to a halt for me yeah because uh, then uh, you you got bit characters that don't work very well in the whole scheme of things again uh, male actress Gam, the the giant playing this uh, woman a very thirsty woman a guy who wants uh, a giant rather who wants to eat yeah uh, eat up the thief literally with love and it's not a particularly fun uh, extended uh, comedic bit or anything nor is the bit where Hong Kwok Choi ends up in the home of someone who's blind so that's comedy that doesn't land for Choi Hak he he proved himself to be good at like age-old comedy if we flash forward to stuff like Shanghai Blues where people are hiding under beds and in closets and uh, running around in a room in order to be undetected so I mean that instinct is there for when it comes to Choi Hak and his uh, comedic chops but uh, not necessarily in the bits that involve uh, supporting characters uh, here. And there's also a female lead here that one of the kind of, I want to say, like uh, unnecessary inclusions because it, it doesn't pay off at all when uh, Choi Hak uses a little bit of a twist ending involving her. She's been so underused that she's almost an invisible character that a twist ending is then uh, hedging its bets on. And that doesn't work at all. 
And we already know that she's one of the cannibals. Like that's already established earlier in the movie. So it's not even really a twist ending because it's like, well, we 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 as the audience know that she loves to eat hearts, right? Like we 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 got that. So but it's the way she was used that I mean it's a little bit of a spoiler but uh, she she's this sort of typical character that uh, the hero if you will which is not really a, a hero he's uh, kind of useless as we said wants to take away yeah. from from the horror of it all and then she's the same as the other uh, uh, other cannibals and that's uh, I'm not asking Choi Hak to like make this uh, 20 minute uh, felt story about someone who wants to leave their uh, desperate uh, their desperate uh, surroundings or anything she, she's she's simply underused and it's a shame because she's in the butterfly murders playing a very very fun character to have amongst those uh, martial characters so she, she's very talented michelle yim is her name but uh, certainly it feels like she has about two or three scenes here including the twist ending uh, that was uh, borderline like useless uh, for me I think the perfect example of what doesn't work for me in this movie, you brought it up the, the, and this is uh, spoilers, but the, the Hong Kwok Choi scene where he's in the, the house with the blind man and he's doing all that stuff that comes right after Melvin Wong's fight with Eddie Ko where Rolex gets killed. So like you've got this like intense fight scene that uh, ostensibly our main character, or at least our second lead of the movie gets brutally killed. And then we go right into a comedy scene where he's like avoiding this blind man. And it, it just, that's one of those ways where the tonal whiplash doesn't feel like that cool Hong Kong tonal whiplash that I love. It just feels almost a little bit, like Joy Hawk's uncertain of what kind of movie he's trying to make. I think uh, even though his movies has always been uneven, any filmmaker's movies are uneven throughout their filmography, some of the inexperience shows up here in terms of making fe- feature films and all of that. So, And uh, it's experimentation, I'm sure, to a degree. Um, I'm sure he would go through with a sequence like that, and then when he's in the editing room, he probably would say to himself, nope, shit, that doesn't work. Well, it needs to be in here. Because uh, we gotta have some comedy in there, but uh, rest assured, I, I don't like it. But uh, I'll, I'll take responsibility for it. I'm, I'm sure he, he's the first one, I think, to admit that. He's also a self-admitted asshole on set. He said uh, many times, especially when he made Blade, that uh, I'm a nasty person. Completely nasty, I'm shouting at everyone, but uh, hey, that's me. <coughs> so he just laughs it off, really. <laughs> Sometimes he shows up, like he's, some movies, he's been an asshole on set, and the movies are exemplary. Blade, uh, Blade included. So, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes can't be mad at him for uh, for acting out. <laughs> no, I, I get I get that completely too. You know, when he does act out in terms in terms of uh, camera placement and creating like stylish shots and what have you, if you think of uh, scenes like uh, Hong Kwok Choi is up in a tree at one point, he's really up in a tree, and the camera is shooting um, uh, shooting down. So, so we get that. Then there, there's a nighttime scene where uh, people are gathered with lanterns and the lanterns are all placed because the actors are placed in a particular way where, where the lanterns form like a triangle pattern and what have you. So there are a couple of things here where he's, um, he's uh, doing some camera gymnastics, uh, which in all seriousness, because some parts of the movie didn't work very well, I felt were welcome visual distractions, a little... Uh, or cool, uh, cool shots, literally. And for uh, when it comes from Choi Hak, I don't mind some cool shots. It turns out throughout his career, he was very good at uh, distracting us with cool shots. 
and I make no excuses. I kind of like when he does. So there are some uh, little uh, little highlights uh, for me in terms of that. But uh, did the visuals pop for you uh, in terms of uh, terms of that? Anything memorable? Nothing specific that stood out for me uh, necessarily. But again, it was it was pretty clear as I was watching it. Yeah, I'm watching a Choi Hawk movie. You know, I mean, it just it's the same thing. You know, to go back to the Raimi comparison, you know, Raimi came out of retirement basically to direct the new Doctor Strange movie, which was it really retired? Uh, he was not so much retired, but he just wasn't really interested in making movies. He He's a gardener now. He likes to tend. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so wholesome because uh, that plays into his uh, sort of like, hey, buddy, personality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, say what you will about Doctor Strange, but that movie but when you're watching it it is undeniably a sam raimi movie uh the the camera work is so confident the shot selection the blocking it's all so confident and so energetic it's not marvel rigid it's a little bit uh, of its own kind very much so i don't think it looks like any other marvel movie plot wise it feels like every other marvel movie but looks wise it does not look like any other marvel movie and it's the same thing that Choi Hawk has. There is such an, the only way I can describe it is an energy and an enthusiasm in using the camera as a viable storytelling vehicle. Not just the thing that you shoot the movie with, but the camera is an actual part of the narrative. The, the camera is used to help propel the narrative forward. And and Choi Hawk is always so good at that. And that that's through and through here as well. It, it, the camera is moving. It's, it's energetic. It's enthusiastic. And so I didn't have one thing that stuck out for me, but watching it, I was just like, yep, it's a Choi Hawk movie. I mean, there's just in my mind, there's there's really no question it's a Choi Hawk movie. It feels like a Choi Hawk movie from that respect. So I, I thought it looked I loved just watching it, like I, regardless of what I think of the comedy and the narrative, just watching it. I loved I thought it looked great shooting outdoors um, and uh, mainly, I guess, referring to Kung Fu films rarely showed off this flair. It, it was simply low budget films shot outdoors. Looks like good weather, but shot outdoors, not particularly, not particularly stylish or anything. Uh, I was checking who his uh, cinematographer was, and uh, it was one of those uh, guys who transitioned into uh, directing some cult movies. Uh, Lao Hong Chun, he's actually the director of Devil Fetus. You know, speaking of uh, cult horror titles. Uh, Do you love me some Devil Fetus? Love Devil Fetus. And, and he shot one of the better-looking kind of Chinese ghost story clones uh, called a Chinese legend in 1991. Joey Wong is in it, but it looks smashing. It's a very underseen film, but that's to be expected from a from a, a noted cinematographer. So again, just to round off my notes, uh, towards the end you pick up on the fact that, uh, you know, the, the character literally says, Agent 999, that um, he, he shows no belief in the system that has fed this town. You know, he says at one point, this town is all screwed up and you can't ever fix this. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, ding-ding message, perhaps, in there. But as we said, it's uh, it's all fairly entertaining. Got some highs, got some lows. And I wouldn't say some of the highs uh, were the wild, active ending, necessarily. I mentioned the roller skates. I wouldn't say that's particularly memorable. It's just one of those, well, Etiko is on roller skates. That makes the ending move, I suppose. It was not fetching. It was kind of tiring. 
the the way just the ending go clang 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 you know like someone is ringing a bell constantly like look at us look at us look at us wild ending but there are moments with eddie uh, with eddie Coe and uh, norman Choi. eddie Coe has a one of those uh, broad knife uh, broad knives on a spear or what have you fighting norman Choi. whether he's on roller skates on that point or not i don't remember but that, that is really admirable choreography i really like a good uh, good bit of the weapons choreography so Corey Young gets to put in some work rather than the ending being this uh, wild comedic village revolution. Uh, It doesn't really work because I thought it was kind of in your face but not in a good way. Uh, So, uh, but yeah, I guess Roller Skate would have been topical but it doesn't make for a wild celluloid necessarily. And then the twist ending is here. You you sort of go like, eh, (laughs) that, that, that was expected I suppose at one point. But it makes for an image, I suppose, for your audience to go, <gasps> credits. They, you know, that's a young instinct, I suppose. Like, well, the m- movies kind of do that, don't they? They uh, pull the rug out from underneath you, and then you have to absorb that as the lights go on. But uh, that's not to say it works. It definitely uses those, like, horror movie tropes, right? Because you, you've got, they escape the village, and then you get the one last guy, so you get the one last sort of fight scene and then you get the the twist ending with Eileen holding out the beating, the still beating heart. And it goes to that, you know, you get that like high contrast. It goes to that look and you get the big Suspiria score and ah, yeah. the final stinger, you know. So it's very clear that, that Choi Hawk was he was very familiar with burgeoning like late 70s, early 80s. Even though this was made in 1980, they, you know, these movies were all starting to develop horror tropes. You know, and and he's trying to put those in, even though, again, the movie doesn't really feel like much of a horror movie. He's still clearly trying to, like, check those boxes off. Yeah, the, I think that was a choice to not execute um, those instincts to create horror with tension and atmosphere. I, I think uh, that, that was a very deliberate choice. He's not going for that, even though it has gore and cannibals and murder. Um which is, you know, that's fine. I didn't need it. Uh, why, why not exclude that and see where you end up using all the other bits? And uh, as we said, there are highs and lows in terms of efficiency uh, within uh, all those choices. Um, but the twist ending is not uh, this uh, highlight or anything, but it makes for a screen capture. <laughs> screen capture of notes, I suppose. So that, that's the end of my notes. Anything else you want to highlight personally? You know, it's a slight film. I mean, I, I know we haven't talked as long as we normally do on it, but the reality is it's a pretty slight film. I mean, there's it's a low budget horror comedy martial arts film. There's 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 not a lot of depth or threads to pull out at it here. Uh, other than just I do still think for all my criticisms of it, I had a delightful time watching it. I mean, I enjoyed the hell out of it. So, you know, it, it, it's I think you said it earlier. I think it's an essential step in a genius filmmakers filmography. Uh, so if people haven't seen it, I think, I think they absolutely should seek it out. Uh, and, you know, and it's one that I, I will probably watch again at some point here in the relatively near future. Maybe I'll save it for October when I watch, you know, all my horror movies and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, it is, it is, there's not much else to to pick apart on it, I don't think. Very much so, I agree. So let's uh, talk about the availability. And thankfully, it was issued on anamorphic widescreen DVD in Hong Kong and uh, America. A good 10, 15 years ago now. It had been in crop to full screen VCD hell prior, meaning that if you needed subtitles, all of those 
um, <laughs> nearly all of those subtitles were cut off. Uh, this is a this is a good old widescreen cinemascope film, so uh, a lot of cutting uh, of uh, subtitles would have occurred if you watched it on VCD. Uh, so those are the Hong Kong and US DVDs. Uh, the French label HK Video also put out this film in a free pack with Butterfly Murders and Dangerous Encounter first kind, obviously, with no English subtitles. But the English-friendly editions uh, that, I, that I mentioned uh, in Hong Kong and the US, they are available second-hand. Uh, the, the latter edition, the US edition, more uh, much more cheaply if you go onto Amazon and that marketplace, you, you'll find it. it. It's like a Media Blasters Tokyo Shock thing, I believe. So it's a bare bonus disc, but obviously you're going to get that anamorphic widescreen transfer. Perhaps a little bit better subtitle translation than on the Hong Kong DVD. I, I can't say that for sure. But uh, you're, you're able to get it. Uh, so, so if you want to own it uh, for October, you can probably go on, on the Amazon Marketplace and pick it up very, very cheaply. Yeah, it, I was looking at it yesterday. It's, you know, you can get copies for around, yeah, five bucks plus shipping, you know, five bucks plus shipping. And we're not, it's, it's not like, it's not like one of those that's available on eBay for the low, low price of eat a dick. The, the VCD probably is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the cropped VCD. Like that, that's an 80 bucks uh, collector's item that uh, the English speaking audiences will not be able to understand. But. Uh, so yeah, we are going to sign off. We are going to return to you, um, me and Mike, uh, with an episode on uh, Choi Hak's Dangerous Encounter First Kind, a.k.a. Don't Play With Fire. Uh, the highly unpleasant Choi Hak film, also quite uh, unavailable. Uh, it's been seen, it has a reputation, but it's not been uh, made widely available. But I think it's a crucial step, because if, if you think about it, Mike, if you're slightly familiar with uh, the type of filmmakers and the type of films that came out, in Hong Kong from these new filmmakers, uh, the new wave. Some of them were very social and unpleasant. Choi Hak didn't do that initially, but he got uh, a lot of confrontational stuff into one film before he veered off into comedy and special effects. And that was Dangerous Encounter, first kind. We spoke of animals uh, not being hurt for We're Going to Eat You. Well... Dangerous Encounter First Kind, it opens with uh, major animal cruelty. And that sets the tone for the rest of the unpleasantness to uh, to follow. It's been years since I've seen it, so I'm looking forward to revisiting it. But I just, I remember the movie just feeling really angry. Like Rio Lamb level angry. And and you saw a compromised version because they rejected, they rejected it. It was too controversial. The content was too controversial. So they reshot some stuff, re-edited scenes to make it less controversial and confrontational and still it was mightily angry so when when you and i examine both versions you're gonna see something that uh, i think is gonna kind of shock you to your core that that's what choi hack wanted but couldn't but they did they, they, they've assembled his original cut uh, is my point so we can watch uh, both of them we are going to return at, at a later date uh, to look at dangerous encounter first kind me and mike but uh, thank you very much for taking the time michael uh, in uh, in real life you have uh, you have a uh, um, a free hour experience with uh, Keanu and Scott Atkins and all those action stars awaiting, and uh, John, meaning John Wick Four is in your future at the time of recording. So thank you very much for taking the time to be with us uh, before that um, prestigious day that this is. You know I love coming on here and talking to you, man. So I this is this is always I'm always happy anytime you you ask me to come on. I, I try and drop whatever I'm doing just to, to come and chat with you. So oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Well it was good perhaps that we did this movie rather than Dangerous Encounter First Kind <laughs> before. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely be in a little better headspace uh to go see John Wick four because we did this one. 
excellent well thank you regardless i'm glad to have you on and look and looking forward to that future chat but uh, in the meantime some very quick plugging and then we're out uh, for all your podcast on fire network needs podcast on fire.com is the website all our episodes are a big catalog of podcast on fire and this weekend's please what's korean cinema etc that's on there as well as on apple podcasts uh, stitcher radio spotify or wherever you find podcasts and uh, look up uh, prior discussions between uh, me and mike on uh, black mask 2 on uh, god dangerous two faces and uh, profile in anger and uh, good uh, good stuff like that so we even did black mask one for heaven's sake so we uh, we did don't forget that we watched four different versions of master with crack fingers so i didn't regret anything other than having to watch dean check four times so. podcast on fire listeners never question our dedication to your entertainment I never make anyone do stuff, but Mike is uh, devoted and still dove in in that uh, pool of shit that is uh, Dean Check for 15 minutes straight in a, in a uh, cut and paste Jackie Chan film. <laughs> uh, Want to watch it again? <laughs> you know, I would watch Cub Tiger again. I actually liked that, but I am not watching. No, 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 no Dean Check. No, thank you. Please, no. We have a connection, by the way, to Cub Tiger from Kwangtung. You remember who played Little Frog, the pickpocket in Cub Tiger from Kwangtung? Cut to the thief in this film. Yep, yep, yeah. I actually, I actually looked that up. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, so anyway, we're, let, let's uh, throw out a quick plug for uh, the A4E Action for Everyone podcast uh, for the kids. Sure. Uh, Twitter at A4E Podcast, Linktree slash A4E Podcast, uh, podcast anywhere you can listen to podcasts, Apple, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, all of those things. Do you do a full video one or just do clips? Uh, because you obviously record uh, record yourselves um, uh, on video on Zoom and things, or, or that's just for uh, Twitter purposes. Posted. I have posted some videos on YouTube. The problem is, is editing video takes me about five times as long as it takes me edit audio so i typically just do clips and i haven't even really been doing those much lately it just it's just too time consuming to do it but i've got them i've got some ready to upload so yeah i'll uh, you can just go to youtube slash a4e podcast i believe is our our link for youtube and you can see some of the ones we've posted that's why i'm uh, i'm I'm not on that podcast nor asked because uh, I, i don't do video so <laughs> it's like the, it, it's not going to be attractive with a black screen in the corner <laughs> or anything so. if we didn't used to either but it, it does get hard you know when you have if you have four or five people on it does get a little out video that's true very much uh good on you good luck with everything uh, looking forward to uh what kind of uh, guests uh, are coming up in the future but regardless enjoy the conversations uh, between each other between friends and uh, it seems uh, like he's doing good stuff uh, to you personally, mentally, and uh, for the other guys as well. So. It is. Appreciate that. Uh, so anyway, I've been Kenny B. And with me was Michael Scott of the Action for Everyone podcast. So say goodbye to um, to uh, to the kids and uh, off to John Wick. You go. Bye, kids. I'm going to go watch uh, Keanu Headshot, people. Keanu.